So this is the third and final conversation in this collection that I'm putting out. It's with Miko Pellid. Uh, he was born in Israel and he's an author and now an activist for the Palestinian cause. But his father was a famous Zionist general dating back to the early days of Israel's formal state creation. So Miko has really traveled the full distance from being an enthusiastic Zionist in his youth to now being a rather strongly opposed to it. Uh, he chronicled his story in a book that he wrote entitled A General's Son. I put him last in this trilogy because I think for certain people, especially in the older Jewish generation, someone like Miko is pretty hard for them to hear. Uh, there's some videos where he's shouted down and treated pretty badly, frankly, by his audiences, which are often full of people uh, who are really not ready to hear his level of bluntness about the history of Zionism and, and the Israel Project. Um, I'm hoping that by putting him after my personal argumentation in the first episode regarding history and my conversation with Gideon Levy about the pulse of the Israeli character, and then the important conversation with Richard English on that very controversial and blurry line between violent resistance and terrorism, that Miko will be heard now in a fair light. Because you'll hear Miko say things like resistance is the only option or, you know, you have to build tunnels to go in and out of Gaza and stuff like that, which many people will hear as Hamas apologetics. And that's fair. We can have that conversation. But try to hear it, hear it in the lens of Richard English's important work on terrorism in the previous conversation and certainly hear it in the light of the acts of terrorism conducted by Zionists prior to 1948. Uh, and or the state violence by Israel, which could be described as terrorism if we really want to get into those word games. And then there's one more important thing I'm going to try to do with this collection uh, that I'm going to do in the next episode after this one, because as I promised in the previous episode, I'm challenging myself to really try to put my money where my, my mouth is with some of this stuff, because it's really easy for me to criticize and throw spitballs but what's really hard to do is actually to try to outline what I think should be said, and of course what practically could be said about any of this stuff. So in the fifth and final part of this series, it will be just me in a solo essay again, where I'm going to try to write and deliver, I guess, two speeches, one that I wish a prime minister of Israel would be able to deliver sometime in the next few months, and the other that I think actually could be delivered given the practicalities on the ground. I also want to remind the listener that I'm in the process of putting all of the transcripts to these conversations up on my website, that's whatjthinks.com, uh, and trying to highlight them with links to some things that you might want to explore more about. For example, when Miko in passing mentions things like the Maccabees or the Six-Day War or something like that, or the story of Israel Del Han, who I'm going to speak about at the end of this episode a little bit more. Um, you could find that stuff on the website, click on it, and learn more. Um, some of the names of the Palestinians, which he identifies as potential leaders uh, and lesser known stories like that. So I've also compiled a pretty huge list of sources and resources that I think are, are really helpful in this entire conversation, uh, including plenty of film and book recommendations. Okay, so now please. Listen and enjoy this important and honest conversation between me and uh, Miko Pellet, which will outline his journey from confident and unquestioned Zionism to Palestinian activism. 
Oh, and also, uh, I apologize for my voice in this conversation. I had nearly completely lost it when uh, I was conducting the interview, so I apologize for the strange squeaky duck tone that I have throughout. Uh, and just to mark the time of this conversation as well, uh, I recorded this with Miko a few weeks ago, and that's why you'll you'll hear him put the death count of Palestinians in Gaza around 20,000. Uh, at the time of recording this video right now, uh, we're almost at 30,000. So enjoy. To start getting your story a little bit, I'll phrase it this way. So I want to ask about the relationship between myths and nation building generally, and then sort of how how does one parse truth from myth? And in your case, which myths were you exposed to? And then how did you come to parse truth from myth and reconcile sort of a way forward from that? Wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you dive right into it. No, that's great. Look, I, I mean, I don't think there's any question that uh, nations rely on myths. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't have the the any patriotism or 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 the sense of nationality without myths. I think what's unique about uh, Zionism and what's unique about growing up in a family that is so in, ingrained and part of the myth is that your certainty that the myth is true is probably stronger than anybody else. I mean, most people don't doubt the mythology of their country. They don't bother to, but if they tried, they wouldn't be that hard. I remember sitting, this is my first encounter with Palestinians ever in my entire life, right? I'm in the suburb of San Diego in Southern California at the home of a Palestinian, a beautiful home. It's a Jewish-Palestinian dialogue group. My first visit, my first meeting, it's 2001, maybe. And I've never been to a Palestinian home in my life. And there's something in the back of my mind that's wondering if this was a good idea to begin with before I get in, before I go in and see the people, right? And we're sitting and talking, and the Palestinian, and the purpose of the dialogue group is for people to tell their story. It wasn't about conversations or debate or politics, just tell their story. Well. Nobody has greater possession of the truth than I do. With my legacy, with my family, I mean, please, give me a break. I mean, nobody knows more about Israel and Zionism and 1948 and all that than I do. And here are these very nice, respectable, intelligent, educated people who happen to be Palestinians who are telling me that the world is flat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The world is flat. Night is day and day is, and day is night. And you look at these people, they're not crazy. They're not hateful. They're certainly not anti-Semitic or any of that kind of nonsense. They're ed educated, intelligent, lovely people. And they're telling their story. And the next one is telling their story. And the next one is telling their story. And I'm thinking, could they all have sat together before I showed up, before the Jews came and conspired to tell the same story? Mm -hmm. Makes sense, right? And then you go... What, what, what do you do with this? I mean, where do you go with this? I mean, everything is shattered suddenly. These people don't think the way you think. They don't believe what you believe. They don't know what you know, or maybe what you know is not true. I mean, this is this is this is huge. What do you do with it? I'll never forget that moment. Mm -hmm. Never in my life will I forget that moment. And then you'd have to make a decision at that point. Do you continue along this route, which you don't know where it's going to take you, 
Or do you say, oh, screw this, these guys are nuts, and just go back to what, where, you, where you're comfortable? And for reasons that I can't really explain, mm. I chose mm. former. I said, no, 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 these people are intelligent, they're interesting, they're caring, they're compassionate. I feel something very strong and affinity to them, to the Palestinians, even more so than the Jewish people who are there, although many of them are my friends, or became my friends. And I said, uh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick around and see yeah. where this goes. And that's what I did. And then I began to, to educate myself and so on. And then I had to walk this limbo path of this, 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 this place where I don't belong to anything. And I don't know what the hell's going on before mm -hmm. I reach the shore of knowing and understanding again. I, I think it's a, a fairly common uh, phenomena you live through in all kinds when any myth is broken or, or something that sort of you love. But how, so, so when you said you started to do research, I mean, how did you start to verify some of the things? I mean, you could tell me the specific myths you grew up on. It was a people without land or all, all the normal sort of Israel hero stories. And maybe the, you know, whatever some of those myths were, like what, what was challenging it? And how did you then come to say, okay, what I knew was, was completely wrong? You well, know, yeah, I mean, I was raised, you know, so the, the mythology, you know, you learn in school, you hear it mm -hmm. in people's conversations, you know, around the table. In my house, the Zionism, the state was everything. Every mm -hmm. conversation began and ended with what are we doing for the state today? How are we contributing to the state today? What have we sacrificed for the state today? I mean, it sounds it sounds really, really fascist, kind of yeah. a fascist education. That's the conversation. Who contributed more? Who gave more? Who, you know, stayed latest in their office, you know, burning the midnight oil, you know, and so on. I mean, this was everything. And, and these were important people around my family. I had a great uncle who was a president. My grandfather, you know, signed the Declaration of Independence. My father was a general. These are like, this is like, uh, you know, Zionist Disneyland. It's just, you know, it's crazy how powerful it is. And I'm a kid absorbing all of this. Plus, there's what you learn in school and what you hear everywhere else. So all of it, you know, descendants of King David, descendants of the Maccabees, you know, the few against the many, the, the Jews who, you know, like the Phoenix, rose from the ashes of the Holocaust, 2,000 years of suffering, all, everything. But everything was alive. I mean, everything was real. 1948, how we defeated these Arabs who came to kill us all and... Thankfully, we defeated them because if they had won, we would all have been slaughtered. And I mean, and this going, this is, you know, I was, I wasn't alive in 1948, but I heard this as 1960, after 1967, when I already was alive, you know, as a little boy and on and on and on, all of it, the Arabs being, uh, well, you name it, uh, killers and haters and and then everything else that you probably say about, about the other uh, and dirty and stupid, everything, you know, um, and um, and so I, I had it all, and I believed all of it because it was so real. The way it was discussed around the table, the way these things were talked about in my family, both my, you know, my the nuclear family, but also the extended family, it was like, this is all real. You know, the entire Zionist uh, mythology was alive at the dinner table every day. Yeah. Um, and so what do you do with this? So now I'm sitting, you know, all these years later, I'm in San Diego and it's 2001 or something. And, um, now by then several things had happened. Mm. So my transformation, if you will, wasn't, didn't come in a void, didn't happen in a void. So, 
you know, in the, after 1967, my father, while still in uniform, because he, he was one of the generals who who planned and executed the 1967 war. On the last day of the war, which was the fifth day, it was actually a fifth five-day war. It wasn't a six-day war. They called it six days because of the miracle, mm. you know, to the six days of creation. And the Jewish prayer book is full of the six days, six days, six days. That's the connection. Mm. So he stood up in the first, the first, the first meeting of the Israeli High Command, you know, they're all dusty and and, and feeling full of victory and victorious. And, uh, and he said, well, now we have an opportunity to make peace with our neighbors. We return the Sinai Peninsula to the Egyptians, the Golan Heights to the Syrians, and we allow the Palestinians to establish their own state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, with East Jerusalem as their capital. And now we won on all fronts and our kids don't have to go to the army anymore. They don't have to fight anymore. That's what we did all this for, which, you know, to a lot of people would make sense, except the environment was, we just finished the job. Mm -hmm. 1967 war was just just the last small chapter of what we did in 1948, because we left a few pieces of, of, of the land of Israel in, in foreign hands, so we had to take it, and that's what 1967 was about. Now you're talking about doing what again? Giving Palestinian rights and then giving it back and peace. Who needs all this nonsense? So he was taken aside several times, you know, it's Huckerbean and some of the others who were his, you know, comrades in arms saying, you know, this is, what are you talking about? And then from the, he, he remained in the military another year before he retired, but the rest of his life, that's all he talked about. So I grew up also hearing that there was a thing called Palestinians. Also hearing about this thing that there's a, uh, you know, they may have a uh, uh, right to self-determination and, and that not all of this land, even though it's ours and we love it, but we need to compromise and they also have rights and we've done a few things that are wrong, perhaps, this whole thing called an occupation. This became part of the conversation as well. Mm -hmm. so I had that, you know, that kind of head start because that was going on. And then a <clears throat> uh, couple of decades later, in 1997, my sister's little girl is killed in a suicide bombing in Jerusalem. Well, now the conversation is even as broad. My father passed away already by then. He passed away in 1995. And two years later, this happened. So now the whole conversation is taking a whole new turn. And 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 the turn that it took, especially my sister, who uh, whose daughter this was, was to say, what have we done to, what have we mm -hmm. as occupiers and oppressors have done? Look what we've done look what we just caused to happen you know and and i think part of the part of the thing that i find troubling is that the violence has become so normalized and we never talk about the details yeah suicide bombing there's a bombing here the israel bomb you know what i mean so we move on and i'm like okay so three, in this case three young men blew themselves up and killed themselves and killed a whole bunch of others including this 13 year old girl who happened to be my sister's daughter what are what is going on here what kind of reality did we create that allowed this to happen? Mm -hmm. And unless you slow down and and I think talk about this, we're never going to end it. So that happened then. So then a few years later, I was already living in the U.S. And a few years later, I, I joined this, this dialogue group. So it didn't happen in a void, but I still firmly believed in the mythology. Yeah. Even though I realized there's something terribly wrong going on, it never it never shook my you know, it never really shattered my belief in the mythology until I met the Palestinians. 
And then what I did after that particular meeting, I went home. I have an older brother who I talk about this in the book in the general son. I have an older brother who was a uh, political science professor in Tel Aviv. And I called him up. I couldn't think of anybody else and said, look, I'm sitting with these people and they're telling me all these strange things. Is, Is there any merit to it? And he says, well, you should actually read, you know, Ilan Pape and some mm-hmm. of these other historians who have just published all this work about 1948. So I did. I went to the library and I got all the books and I sat there with 20 books and I just, you know, read as much as I could. And I realized that actually what the Palestinians were saying not only had merit, it was the truth. And everything I was taught uh, happened to be a lie. And that's not an easy place to be, mm-hmm. especially. Again, when so many members of your family were participated in what was five minutes ago was an act of heroism and is now a horrible crime against humanity. That transformation is not an easy one. Yeah. But the, the Palestinian community that I was engaged with were very kind and generous and allowed me to go through this process as, as long to, to take as long as I needed. But that was the process. So I should just tell you this. I sort of see this conversation and the next two of them having a sort of a, a group. I'm speaking to you, and I really want to get your story and your activism and and really weave through that. Uh, my next conversation is with Richard English, who I think asks a lot of the really difficult questions, and I'm going to touch on some of them now about um, the the complex moral relationship between liberation, resistance, violence, words like terrorism. I think it's a lot of very uncomfortable things. Like when you just said you know, your, your niece blows up um, and you're, and maybe it's not your first question. I'm sure you're also sad and, and there, there's sorrow involved in it, but you want to go to this question of, you know, even after 9-11, the, why do they hate us? It's on everyone's tongue, right? It's like, this is, it's, this is an act of passion and it's violent and it's horrible. And any answer that sort of allows a context to that anger um, and doesn't just dismiss it as sort of supernatural terrorism or something just so you know so horrible it can't be put in context. It's really tough for people, I think, to swallow and comprehend. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that? When you just you know how was is that process in your head for bomb goes off? You know, what did we do in order to make them so mad? Some people are like, well, it's victim blaming, and they sort of immediately shout you out of the room. Or lots of people in their own head don't even allow themselves to formulate that thought. Well, I, I have to give credit to my sister, who right off the bat said this before anyone. Mm. Uh, it was big news when when her daughter was killed, because this mm. is the granddaughter very well-known general who became Mr. Peace of Palestine, and now Palestinians are killing his granddaughter. So this is a very big news in Israel. And when the press, uh, and the press were, you know, there all day, every day, from 6 a.m. to midnight. And that's what she said. She said, you know, look what we've done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and she also said, you know, people talk about revenge. She said, no real mother would want, <clears throat> excuse me, no real mother would want to see this happen. Yeah. <clears throat> to any other mother so you know she kind of led that and uh, i was i was i mean you're in a state of shock you don't know what yeah. to think i mean it's just so powerful but that's exactly the kind of shock that forces you to re-examine your beliefs and then if there is a change that needs to be made then that's the time that you that that happens i mean i think usually we go through these things big changes in our lives as a result of, of something tragic something terrible like that yeah uh, and so that was that was the process mm-hmm. I want to talk about um, 
some some of my thoughts in here if my voice will will allow me to get them out but i want to talk about this notion of um dignity and i what i see as a misunderstanding that people have about things like you you'll hear things like well the palestinians get all this money and all this aid or whatever and why don't they use it to build cafes and build universities and you know make a life there in, in gaza or something instead they you know they build it to build tunnels and they and 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 cause violence and all this kind of stuff. And I think at the heart of that <clears throat> is a real deep misunderstanding psychologically about what people really want. Um, and you could tell me if I'm wrong about how you see this, but you know, if Hamas was uninterested in the tunnels or whatever and was building cafes all day, no amounts of cafes and a playground for your kids or whatever people are imagining they'll do with this money would be able to, to buy you dignity of what they deeply feel is a is a uh, you know a, a bully and an un, an undignified life, even if you have stuff. Um, I know this is hard for people to hear, but I think there's something kind of proud about that. And these are really hard things for people to hear who just you know want to call Hamas a terrorist group and just write it all off. Of you know, like they in some ways they kind of can't be bought off. And I, I don't know if that's a surprise to people in the West. Maybe especially in America, who think like that's kind of you know what else is there than Starbucks on the corner <laughs> and a playground? What would people really be fighting for? And it's not even necessarily any it, whatever comes out of their mouth, which I want to talk about as well about the religious tone to some of it and everything else. I think deep down, what people, what all people really want is a sense of deep dignity, not this paradigm that we've come to know of security and freedom. I think those are the wrong. Um, things to put on this balancing act of Israel's obsessed with security, Palestinians want freedom, where do we find the balancing act? I think freedom and dignity are, are particularly different. And it seems like your run at it, I'm attracted to it because it seems to be admitting that the, that this needs, um, this needs an answer and a solution or something that actually doesn't just give freedom and security to these two groups, but dignity. And particularly, unfortunately, it's the Palestinians who need to be granted that dignity and the israelis seem to be and i think i'm sure you'll talk about this are quite propagandized in their own right and don't and maybe clouded from even seeing that they, they they cannot see what the palestinians genuinely want other than in their minds revenge and hate and anti-semitism well first of all the palestinians did build cafes and hospitals and schools. right yes let's also let's also blink that out yeah yeah and desalination uh, uh uh not factories whatever they're called uh yeah and so on um and israel bombed it all mm. on a regular basis israel's been destroying everything palestinians built on a regular basis for 75 years so now we're talking about well what do we do next well resistance is the only other option mm. and so you got to build the tunnel so that you can build the resistance and you also got to build the tunnel so that you can go in and out of gaza i mean i visited gaza in 2013 i had to go in through a tunnel <clears throat> interesting story again it's also in the general sun <clears throat> but the uh it's not that they don't want these things they do or build these things they do build right. these israel has destroyed hospitals and churches and mosques and 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 schools and homes and cafes and stores and shopping malls and everything you know israel is very indiscriminate and in it's in its bombings uh it's killing and, and destruction and israel again is israel has been doing this for 75 years before 1948 israel put bombs israel israeli militia were Zionist militia you know, we're bombing cafes and bombing hotels and bombing schools and bombing markets. I mean, they brought terrorism to Palestine, you know, and that's that's what they did. 
So uh, Palestinians can build all day long, and they do, but then they, it all gets destroyed, and they get blamed for not building it. So, you know, it's it's very convenient to just, like you say, to just brush it all off and say, well, there are a bunch of haters and terrorists and religious fanatics, and, and uh, you know, why didn't they create uh, whatever it is, uh, Switzerland in the Middle East, or whatever they want to compare it to, Hong Kong or something, Singapore. Well, the conditions are not exactly the same. You know, Singapore mm-hmm. and Hong Kong are not constantly being bombed by a, a larger power. And it's interesting when you were saying, when we talk about this, in an interview my father gave, I don't know, the 80s at some point, while he was he was um, campaigning to get the Israeli government to agree to negotiate with the PLO, which was then considered the Palestine Liberation Organization, which then was considered like Hamas today. It was like, you know, you don't even say that word or at least this acronym. And he was asked, you know, why would you, how can you negotiate with terrorists? And uh, he said, well, when a small nation is occupied and oppressed by a larger power, Terrorism is the only means at their disposal. That's all they got. That's all they can do. Now, I today wouldn't use the word terrorism. I'd replace it with resistance. But that was the, the jargon. That was the term. Either way, we put people in a position where they have no choice. Do the Palestinians want to fight and die and be killed and, and, and do this? I mean, nobody wants to do this, right? But like you said, if you start asking those questions... Now you're getting into a more complex conversation, which Israelis don't want to have and the pro-Israelis don't want to have. And certainly Americans at this point um, mostly don't want to have because it legitimizes something they don't want to see legitimate. Mm-hmm. You know, it legitimizes this resistance and, 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 it, and it forces us to talk about what oppression is and what's being done to Palestinians. And by the way, who's sending billions and billions of dollars to Israel to allow this to continue? So that's exactly the process. So that's 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 how this thing works. What what would you if you could dispel like the top myth or American Jews in particular, I think who are maybe I I'm, I grew up in this. I wrote an essay which people can can read about my upbringing. Um American Jews and Israelis. What's sort of like the top myth that if you could just pluck it out of their minds would go a long way? to to reaching some of this peace that we all seek well it's hard to pick one um mm-hmm. i think i think probably uh, i don't know if there's one but i think the 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 uh, maybe the overriding story that israel is a safe haven for jews that israel is a response to the holocaust and then the connection between that's being made very forcefully between palestinian resistance and the nazis mm-hmm as a fear tactic for people to be afraid of the of the Palestinians and 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 re, and connecting the Palestinian resistance to just this ingrained racism and anti-Semitism. Mm. I um, want yeah, go on. No, no, go ahead. I, I was gonna so like as I think these this conversation is so difficult for people to hear because maybe it's hard to remember where you were before all the myths started being dispelled and maybe how, you know, how you would react to hearing them. Um, I wanted to read something actually that my, my mom said to me the other day, maybe like what, what you would say to her. Cause she's, she's been struggling with this. She's uh, 72. So she grew up in a different era, getting fed a stronger version of it. My grandfather fought in world war II, and it was, you know, um, he, he was deeply attached to the story. Um, and, and as a bit of hope, which she really liked as well, we were talking about it the other day. Um, I said, you know, 
would your father have ever believed that you just went to Japan for vacation and that you drive a Mercedes? And she laughed and she's like, never, right? Like things, things can change. So even though this is dark, I think this conversation is hopeful. But the way she put it to me was like this. She, as an American Jew, she said, you know, the topic of Israel is really uncomfortable for her right now for a lot of reasons. And she says she loves Israel the way that a mother would love a child who's in jail for a crime. Um, I thought it was interesting. I think there might be some things off of the analogy, but th this is what I think, I think it's a good analogy, an interesting one about like, she doesn't know how to love something that, uh, or she, or she, you know, she can't remove her love from something from a son who's done a horrible thing, committed murder or whatever. These mothers still love their sons and she doesn't quite know what to do with that. I don't know if you would want to react to that because I think so much of this now is emotional and I'm sure you've I actually just recently watched that uh, that talk you gave in uh, Bethlehem, New York, I think it was, with a very loud and hostile uh, audience. My mom could have been one of them in there. She she would have been very well behaved. But it's such an emotional issue for people that sometimes facts and arguments such as the ones you're making sort of nonchalantly just like aren't landing. So what what would you do with this emotional deep connection? Here's a, here's a question for you. Do you still love... Uh, I can't say Israel, but like the promise. Do you still love something that could be there? How would you phrase that? Well, first of all, my first response to your mother would be to send her a signed copy of my book of the General Sun. <laughs> okay, we will, I'll give you the address. Yeah, she'll love yeah, it. Yeah, we do that. And I, you know, the reason I say this is because, I mean, I, I think the way she expressed how she feels is very moving. Yeah. It's very moving. It's very, very moving. And I can relate because that's how I used to feel. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt about Israel for very many, for many, many, many years. And so, and what I hear from a lot of Jewish people that are kind of are struggling with this issue is that my, the book, because of the, the story, the, because of it's a journey, because of where I came from and the whole story of my family and all that is a, is, is a really great way to kind of clarify things and, and, and help with, you know, help to clarify. So I'd be, I'd be very, very happy to do that. Um, and maybe that will help. Now, I was asked, I was interviewed by Israeli TV a couple of times, and the last time I was in Palestine, and I told them if they want to meet me, there's a, there's a coffee shop in East Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem. To Palestine. I have, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's Palestine, yeah. If you know, the education bookstore. It's it's a very well-known stop, you know, place in, in East Jerusalem. Everybody sits there, has coffee, buys books. So I, that's where I used to sit, and, you know. And they freaked out. Hmm. They freaked out. They said, oh, my goodness, we have to bring security. We have to check with our bosses. Now, these guys have never left Tel Aviv in their lives, and they think they're the more progressive, most progressive Jews on earth. And I said, look, you bring one gun, one security person, I'm gone. You either show up like everybody else or don't bother me. Anyway, they came. It was fine. And one of the questions that they asked me, the guy, the interviewer asked me, was, do I miss Israel? Or what do I miss about Israel? Mm. Uh, or do I miss anything? And I said, it's Palestine. What are you talking about? There's nothing, there's no such thing as Israel. Israel is a name that was imposed on Palestine, that was given to this apartheid state, to this enormous crime in order to whitewash and legitimize the crime of apartheid and genocide. They gave it the name Israel because they knew that the Christians would never go against it, could never possibly, and neither were the Jews, although, excuse me, many Jews did, you know, it would be emotionally, religiously, spiritually impossible for them to forsake a country that's called Israel. 
and they were right. I mean, it was a, it was it was it was a very smart move to call this uh, this uh, atrocity Israel. Um, and so, and he said, "What did you say?" He was like, he was in shock. I said, "This is Palestine. It was Palestine. It will continue to be Palestine. You can name it anything you want. It's not going to stop." So, I'm at a place where, to me, Israel is an, is 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 just is is a name that was imposed on this. You know, like I said, it's it's a name that was given to a, to the to the apartheid state in order to legitimize it somehow. Uh, apartheid is an ugly name, so they learned from the South Africans and they gave it a nicer name. Hmm. So there's nothing there. I mean, I love the country. I love the people. Uh, I love my family, although they don't speak to me at this particular mm -hmm. moment. But, uh, you know, um, and I have brothers and sisters, Palestinians, brothers and sisters throughout the entire country who are, you know, courageous and, and wonderful people. And so I do love the country and I would I would uh, move back there in a heartbeat if I could. But the point is that to me, Israel is is there's nothing good there. Uh, other than the myth and the faster we heal ourselves from this connection to this thing that never existed um the better we're going to be right so yeah i want to ask you some <clears throat> tough questions i think about how we where where we are now i mean it's clear how you think we got here and uh, i tend to agree with a lot of it but it's tough for people to swallow and you know there's this old um uh, sort of is a clearly racist thought that slave owners would have about their slaves where they would say things like i can't release them i can't free them because they would kill me if i did if i did that because of all the things we've done to them um and i want you to to talk a little bit about that because i have this i know you advocate for oh Let's call it a one state. Let's call it a true democratic state by whatever name. Probably Israel is a bad idea to call it whatever name is there, where Jews will 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 live. It's not you're not advocating for like you know Jews being kicked out and wiped out of the Middle East. It's it's they have to actually fulfill. I think what you would say are are Jewish values of loving the neighbor and maybe a democratic process, whatever they they preach to actually really live it and and draw draw that country in in the in the in the sand. Um, but we I think we have to have to admit um that there is anger. I, I guess the question that I'm getting towards is are are you afraid that we've gone past some threshold of anger and um inability to forgive? where when if if let's say tomorrow that is announced some miracle happens i think you and i would both guess there's going to be a little bit of violence there it's always overstated the slave owners were were always overstating the fear um most people once they get their dignity are are not going to go blow anything up um but there, there will be some and this is not just angry palestinians who've been treated this way it's also far radicalized uh, Zionists who are very well armed now, especially post-October 7th. Um, what kind of courage is it going to take to get through that kind of phase? Because I think everybody's just so scared now. My mom is telling me about her friends who are hiding in their cupboards or something and have, you know, like these safe rooms now because they have this in their mind it's um it's incredibly unhealthy and i'm just wondering if you're afraid that we're getting further from the vision that you would like to see my my, my fear is from 
maybe a handful, maybe four or five thousand Israeli settlers who are armed and and they're led their their entire existence is to relive Masada. Yeah. To die, you know, and to kill, destroy everything, or 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 you know, or Samson, just kill everybody and die in the process. Uh, that's my only concern. Uh, but, you know, you, you establish a, a democratic state, you establish the rule of law, you establish ways to enforce the law. I uh, don't think for one second that uh, Israelis are going to be in any kind of danger at all. It's interesting that the people who have developed this massive military force and nuclear weapons are talking about a fear of a people who had never had a tank. Mm-hmm. A nation that has never had a military force, never had a tank or or, or a warplane or or anything even remotely like you know, um, and that they you know a nation who has been engaged in genocide for almost hundred years are afraid, are, are talking about what would happen once the people who are the victims of the genocide would finally be free. You know, I think there's something really crazy about that that idea. Um, and historically, Jews have always thrived and lived very well with Arabs and with Muslims. And so I don't think there's any any cause, any historical reason or any logical reason to expect that Israelis will be in any kind of danger, although they like to perpetuate that that, that lie, that myth. So no, and I, and I don't think we're ever, I don't think we're ever past the point of hope or past the point of, of reconciliation. The fact that we're waiting this long is, is unfortunate. And I think it's unfortunate that, you know, over 20,000 Palestinians, and the number is probably closer to 50,000 because so many are still buried in the rubble. Uh, had to had to die and all the suffering that's taking place before people are beginning to have this conversation. But I think if we care about Israelis, if we want to see a future where Israelis and Palestinians live in peace, then there's only one path forward, and that is this this you know that that is you know uh, dismantling the apartheid state. Uh, putting Netanyahu and his people in jail and, and, and establishing a, a democratic free Palestine from the river to the sea with equal rights and putting together and creating the mechanisms to allow the refugee, Palestinian refugees to return. That is the pathway to peaceful coexistence. That is creating an environment of tolerance, creating a real environment of democracy, of equality, with a real constitution, with, uh, you know, and, and grounding people's rights in a constitution, in a written document that people buy into and create together. That's how you create peace. Going on with the apartheid and the violence, that's never going to create peace, not even for the ruling, the privileged Israelis. You know, if even if you're, you know, if, you, if you're a prison guard, you're still in prison. So, I mean, that's the only path forward. I don't think that there's, we're ever beyond that. I think it's, 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 a, it's a shame that we're waiting this long to actually have this conversation and, and and make this a reality because there's no question in my mind it's the only way forward and it's in in a certain way i think it, it's 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 perhaps even inevitable yeah can you can you tell me because i'm sure you followed it closely much more closely than the rest of the world who now since october 7th watches it very closely um people see the the huge body count numbers and the atrocities of the bombs now um they didn't pay attention every day you know other than the the time when the israelis are mowing the lawn or whatever like the people pay very little attention um can you speak about a little bit about the efforts by israel in those in quotes sort of peaceful times to continually not just people might know about the arrests they might know about some killings and these kinds of things but you mentioned something in one of your previous um answers about sort of unplugging the culture 
I mean, trying to, to unplug the places where the Palestinian identity can kind of organically grow. I'm talking about things like the theaters and taking down like, um, uh, you know, monuments when someone dies, not allowing people to to have funerals in the out in the open. I mean, that kind of thing feels um, important to underline. And then if you also, because I just don't know them, some of the Palestinian prisoners or hostages, however you would frame it, in Israeli jails that potentially, you know, could could be these kinds of figures, the Nelson Mandela type figures that everyone always asks, where is the Palestinian Nelson Mandela? It's like the effort by Israeli, uh, the occupation to sort of not allow that moment to happen for the kinds of things I'm talking about. I don't know if you just want to tell me about a little of that history rather than just the dead bodies and the bombs. We see those and we're horrified by those, or I hope we are. Even if people think Israeli defenders, it's necessary and some kind of trolley problem, I think it tugs at their heart, but they don't know, they don't seem to know about this thing that I'm asking about. You know, I, I broaden the question a little bit if you let me. I think, yeah, of it's course, a, I think it's uh, what's it's difficult for people to envision a future of a free Palestine, because most people don't know that there was a Palestine before 1948, that there was right. a, an almost free Palestine. It wasn't free politically, but it was a thriving country, a thriving culture, a thriving economy. You know, the Smith of of uh, making the desert bloom has, has taken hold and people actually believe it, where in fact, you know, the saying in Arabic is that the, the Zionists came and took the country fully furnished. I mean, there were entire cities entire cities that were stolen, that were taken, Haifa, Yaffa, uh, um, on and on and on, Akka, uh, Jerusalem, of course, and on, cities that were fully, 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 you know, built with, with institutions, with, with public spaces, with, you know, cars, with hospitals and concert halls and, and newspapers and a political, rich political life. You know, the, the, Agriculture produce. Palestinians were exporting citrus fruits. They were exporting olive oil. They were exporting uh, um, barley for beer. Their cotton. I mean, it was a thriving country for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, and suddenly, what's interesting is the Europeans and the rest of the world forgot that it was Palestine on May 15, 1948. Everybody forgot and started calling it Israel and pretended like this all never happened. So they stole a thriving country. Even the Nakab in the southern desert. You know, which is a very rich desert. It's a, it's you know the the land there, the soil there is very good. When you look at aerial photographs taken by the British in the 1920s, you see tracts of cultivated land by the Palestinian Bedouins who were farmers, and so on. So I think it's important to go back all the way to that. Now, what mm -hmm. Israel has done consistently is try to destroy as much of that as possible, erase it from people's memories change the name of the country, change the name of the cities, change the name of the streets, pretend that there was no history, that there was nothing there for 2,000 years since, you know, when the Jews were exiled until the so-called, their so-called descendants, quote-unquote, came back, and then consistently killing people who were natural leaders, whether they're uh, cultural figures or clergy or academics or uh, political figures, certainly either killing them or throwing them in, in jail or exiling them and making their life hell. They're still doing that. Life, they created a life of terror for Palestinians just day to day. Whether these are Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, and there's some two million of those that maybe some people don't know, their life is a life of terror. The Palestinians in Jerusalem who have their own identity and the kind of their own status live a life of terror. People are afraid to leave their homes. You never know if your child is going to be killed because if your child is killed, 
There's no, there are no consequences to that. You know, big Palestinian cities who are part of what's the so-called proper Israel, Israel pre-1967, you know, where the reality is horrifying. You know, the life there is a life of terror and poverty and 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 and, and deep, deep discrimination. You know, tens of thousands of homes being destroyed and you know under the, under the excuse of illegal demolition. By the way, you never see that happen to Jewish homes who are built illegally. You only see that for Palestinians who, who build or, or add, uh, have an addition or remodel without a permit and so on. Um, and, you know, friends of mine who are today the leaders, the, 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 you know, people who are the, I can I can name you a thousand Nelson Mandela's. Mm. Some are in jail, some are dead and some are actively working today, but they cannot operate together. Because for somebody like Issa Amra, for example, who is a, a, a gifted leader and a brilliant uh, man who runs maybe the most effective uh, grassroots uh, resistance operation in Palestine, and he's in Hebron. And another one, Rafat uh, Abayesh, who were in, in, in a small town in Lakhia, in the Naqab, it's impossible to meet. Or or Fidash Hade in Lid, in the city of Lid, she's a member of the city council. These are people, Hanin Zabi, in the, I mean, there's, there's countless Palestinians who are doing incredibly, incredibly important and courageous work on the ground, but they can only operate locally. They cannot operate nationally. They cannot collaborate. Although, and now at post post uh, October seven, they can't even text each other. Mm. You know, they can't even text each other. Before, if they tried to meet, they'd be stopped somewhere along the way before they actually got together. If they made the the effort, to, if they made the attempt to do that, now they can't even text because people are so scared. People are not going to work. You know, in Hebron, there's a curfew. People are allowed out of, out of their homes for an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. You know the 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 life of terror, and you know there 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 you know there's a, there's there are thousands of of wonderful political leaders, and I and I reject the notion that somehow there needs to be a Nelson Mandela. Yeah. I don't think leaders of, of of revolutions are necessarily good politicians. Right, right. <laughs> if tomorrow morning, if tomorrow morning apartheid collapsed as it did in South Africa, and there were free and fair elections, one person, one vote. You'd have, you know, 10, 20 political parties, people running them, and people would vote for the parties. You know, it's a parliamentary system. It's probably going to remain a parliamentary system. And people will vote for the party and the leaders that they feel are represent their needs. And I would bet you that most people would not necessarily vote along nationalistic lines or identity lines, mm -hmm. but they would vote for the person that would, you know, low taxes, better roads, better schools, you know, the things that people care about. You know what I mean? That would be, so some people will never vote for somebody from the other side. That's for sure. But I think the majority of the people, especially if you have, you know, Israel does not have, the current regime does not have a voting district. It's all one voting district. So the minority or the Palestinians who, who do vote have no power, have no influence. But if you had a voting district that was mixed, now you, we got to sit together and decide who is the person that we're going to vote for that, that, that will serve our interests. Are we socialists? Are we capitalists? Are we whatever the case may be? Do you know? Are we religious? Are we whatever conservative? And that's how you build a nation. So in that case, I think I think you're going to see you're going to see things develop in that in that you know along those lines. But there are there there's like incredibly courageous work being done on the ground by Palestinians all the time, and because they see that their people like you know Fidash Hade, who was a member of the city council in Lid. She grew up and she, she saw, she remembers seeing like five homes being demolished in one day. And when she investigated, she found out that Lid, which is a mixed city, 
there is no there is no plan for infrastructure for the Palestinian neighborhoods that make up 40% of the population, only for the Jewish neighborhoods. So she went and studied city planning and came back and ran for ran for city council. Of course, she's a, she's a one-woman show. But she's strong enough and courageous enough where she gives them hell. And she's a voice to be reckoned with. And in 2021, when there was a big uprising throughout all of Palestine, her voice became, you know, amplified. And so, you know, why... People can't imagine mm. the conditions under which Palestinians who live in the same cities as Israelis, the conditions in which they live with no sewage, no trash collection, no electricity, no schools, no roads, across the street from Palestinian Israeli Jewish Israel citizens of Israel, who have beautiful you know playgrounds and sidewalks. There are no sidewalks in the Palestinian neighborhoods. The sidewalks, parking places to park, nice apartments, and so on. So I mean, th these are people who do incredible, incredible work. They're creative. They're brilliant. They're, they're, you know, I would follow them into fire, you know, if they asked me to. They're so courageous and so smart, and they believe, they believe, absolutely believe in the possibility of a single democracy, a free democratic Palestine with equal mm. rights. Absolutely. I want to go. I know I'm jumping around on the timeline of of the project of Palestine and Israel, but I want to go back to. 1897 all the way and if you could situate sort of the the project the zionist project in terms of colonialization but if it, i think people forget or it's hard to put ourselves in the mindset of the british empire i mean it was 1897 at the time that the the first zionist uh conference was held there Britain, the British Empire still had 70 colonies in the world. Like it's just a hard world for us to to imagine. Um, you know, some of the names Hong Kong, South Africa, Singapore, Jamaica, Trinidad, Tobago, Sri Lanka, it's called Ceylon at the time, um, Fiji, Nigeria, Kenya, you got you get the point. There's a lot of like non-white countries in there. And and you know, that wasn't uh they weren't an anomaly. There was still the age of colonialization and empire. Um and so I think it's just a hard mindset for someone in the year 2024 now to kind of get into of where this Zionist seed was planted and turned into then a political prospect. I don't know if you want to, I'm, I'm asking you basically to lay out your, 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 your root argument that Zionism is a racist sort of uh, immoral, flawed idea from the start and really can't be rescued. Um, but I think situating it back in 1897 from the start is helpful for people just to just to get into that mindset of course Balfour wrote that de declaration you know like they, they have 70 colonies colonies around the world by 1917 i think well, it was 550 but yeah well i mean mentioning Balfour is good because you know 1917 the, the british foreign minister writes a, a little note yeah gives to a jewish millionaire by the name of rothschild mm -hmm that the British government will look favorably on the idea of, on the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Mm. Palestine, he used the word Palestine. Uh, and and, and with, uh, with the expectation that the non-Jewish population, right. they didn't even say Palestinian or Arab because they were brown. So they, or Muslim or anything like that. It was yes. Yeah. Non-Jewish population shouldn't be harmed. Yeah. Now, what, what is this declaration really? It's one European racist, who is, by the way, anti-Semitic, mm -hmm giving another European uh, racist millionaire who happens to be Jewish a promise to have somebody else's country. But I mean, that's basically what it is. But in that, in, the, in, the, in that time, in that world, there was nothing wrong with that. You know, right. white people took uh, brown people's countries and did with it what they wanted. 
I mean, God, you know, look at look at the Congo I and mean, look at other places. I mean, they did whatever the hell they wanted with these countries, and 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 the claim, a lot a lot of the claims and a lot of the ideology that the Jewish Zionists adopted, you know, actually came from Protestant uh, evangelical Christians. The idea of of their Jews return to their homeland, the this uh, the statement of a people without a land to a land without a people. Everybody knew that there was a people there. They did commerce with these people. They, 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 uh, you know, they bought things from these people. They visited these people. They mm -hmm. went to these countries. You know what I mean? But these were brown people, so they didn't matter. That's why they called. They said a country without a people. They just didn't say finish the sentence. What they meant to say is a country without a people who matter mm -hmm. because they're brown, and that's why they could do it. And um, and there was a campaign. There was a very strong campaign several years after that to. Um, uh, that that questioned the, the, the veracity and the legality of this of this document, and was challenging it. And there was maybe perhaps the first political assassination by the Zionists of a Jew. They assassinated a, a gentleman, a, a journalist by the name of Jacob Dehan, who was an ultra orthodox Jew. He was in Jerusalem, and he was on his way. It was I think June of 1924, if I'm not mistaken. He was murdered. He was assassinated. He was murdered by an assassin who was belonged to the Haganah in Jerusalem. He was supposed to leave the next day to London to be part of this campaign to revoke the Balfour Declaration, and the Zionists murdered him. He was he was you know he was a well known journalist and, and an Orthodox Jew, and so you know they they uh, this this and 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 the vast majority of Jewish people, by the way. The most important rabbis at the time, and mind you, Europe had many Jews. This is before World War II. They went on a, on, a, on a campaign to explain what a crazy notion this was. This was this. First of all, it 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 goes against Jewish law. But they knew they knew that this idea was going to be detrimental, destroy the Holy Land, that should be detrimental to Jewish people. And it was a terrible, dangerous idea. So they also campaigned. The, the 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 leaders of the Jewish communities throughout Europe at the time were also campaigning against this. And it wasn't the colonialism, not colonialism. They they said this was going to be violence to the Holy Land. This is going to ruin our good relations with our Arab and Muslim neighbors. It's going to cast a doubt as to the loyalty of Jews in all the countries in which they live as 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 a peaceful, you know, law-abiding uh, religious minority, and so on. So, but yeah, but in those days, you know, white people taking out people's land and splicing it and dividing it was nothing, nothing unique, nothing new. And that's precisely what this was. And the Zionists ran with it. And because they were able to put together a very, you know, very influential, very good, very effective team mm. of spokespeople. My grandfather was one of them as a young man. They go around the world. They spoke many languages. They didn't look Jewish. They shaved their beards. They were, mm. you know. Uh, all professors and doctors and physicists and whatever. My, my grandfather was a doctor. And they traveled around the world and they spoke five European languages so they could go almost to any country and speak in the people's language and explain to them why the Jews need to return and, and raise money from wealthy Jews in order to build uh, Jewish communities in Palestine and so on. So they were very smart. They did a very good job in, in, in getting this done. But it was uh, it was a it was a. Even Jews thought this was a terrible idea, and of course, many Jews still do. Was there argument in their sales pitch about necessity because Europe was becoming unsafe? I, I guess what I'm asking there is like, like what what was the sales pitch of your grandfather? Was it that being like Europe's not a safe place for Jews? We need Israel, or was it more religious in tone? Yeah, 
No, it wasn't religious. These were secular people. They wanted okay. nothing to do with it. In fact, they didn't even want religious Jews to come. <laughs> they did not want the religious Jews. They wanted the educated secular Jews who had who had trouble um getting into all the exclusive clubs because mm. they had, you know, they were their descendants of Jewish or Jewish families. You know what I mean? So they thought a small uh, European uh, colony in this vast jungle of, of Arab savages uh, would, would work well for everybody. And they didn't want the Arab Jews and they didn't want the religious Jews, you know, and there are stories from here to, I'm, I'm actually writing a book about this now, you know, the Zionist got in the way of saving some of the Jewish communities from the Nazis because they thought, you know, we number one, they needed, they knew that they needed piles of bodies in order to, be granted a state and they also didn't want those jews to come they didn't mm -hmm. care about these you know these you know fiddler on the roof type of jews you know the shtetl type of jews they wanted the educated the ones who shaved their beards the one who wore suits and then spoke you know what i mean that's what they wanted but um i i don't know what the sales pitch precisely was other than that i mean the, the safety thing need, didn't need to be pitched in europe i mean jews knew that there was anti-semitism mm -hmm. Um, but whatever it was, it wasn't very successful because European Jews did not come. Even the Holocaust survivors didn't come. The vast, but very small percentage of Holocaust survivors ever, you know, listened or, you know, followed the Zionists into Palestine. Very, very few. And many of those actually left because they were treated so poorly. So they, they I think their sales pitch was, you know, it's time for us to have our own place in our, in our country and, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and like I said, they were not successful at all, even after the Holocaust, they were not very successful at all. And so they had to, to, to scramble when the state was actually established to figure out how they're going to bring Jews. And that's when they went out and started thinking about bringing the Arab Jews and bringing all, you know, all these other communities. Oh, I could just ask one more or two more then. Um, I mean, this one might be difficult but because I, um, I was going to challenge myself in the outro to write kind of a speech. That I that I wish would be given by an Israeli prime minister. Um, I'm imagining you think Israel's political situation at the moment might descend into a new election. I'm not sure how you can answer that however you think, but if you were a speechwriter, there's kind of two questions. What do you think? What 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 do you wish an Israeli prime minister, let's say in a month from now, if they stop the the onslaught, would give to the to the people and maybe to the world? And then which speech do you think is actually realistic for the Israeli population to hear and not <laughs> reject? Well, the speech that what I think is inevitable and will eventually come and sooner would be much better than later is the same statement that, that uh, de Klerk gave when apartheid fell, which is that um, we are releasing all the political prisoners, we are unbanning all the political parties, and we're calling for a one-person, one-vote election through all of historic Palestine from the river to the sea, and um and the state a date for that and uh and that's it and then that's the fall of apartheid and then you have a legislator a legislature and then you have a government that are represent the people for the first time in history and that would be the beginning of, of a new dawn that's the speech i'm waiting for and it could very well be Netanyahu. You, you think so he, he would give that speech he had no choice not out of his free will but the clerk didn't do this out of his free will either he had no choice and then he'll get the Nobel Peace Prize. But, <laughs> and that's usually the process. Um, quick update. My mom has yet to accept Miko's offer to read his book. Uh, maybe that will happen in the future sometime and maybe on a dilemma episode. 
Um, I also want to briefly touch on one of the stories he mentioned in there of uh, Jacob Yisrael Dehan. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, I'll link to more uh, an in-depth version uh, of his story on my site. But just briefly here, Dehan was a well-known poet uh, and Jew from Zandam, Holland, and he was born in 1881. And like many European Jews, began to develop interest in Zionism around 1910 as anti-Semitism all over Europe started to become unlivable. Um, there's a lot of really interesting details to his life story, but I think it's fair to say that his immigration to Palestine in 1919, so that's two years after the Balfour Declaration, by then he was a pretty ardent Zionist and was fully ready to participate in pushing the Arabs off the land. Uh, and he starts to get really into Judaism in 1919 upon his his landing uh, and ends up seeing how the project of zionism was functioning up close and personal and he quickly turns into a very strong anti-zionist and religious leader and he soon found that the aggressive secular zionist movement on the ground in palestine was rather despicable and he began speaking and writing about what he called the tyranny of the zionist movement and his work began to get popular in europe he was a fantastic poet so it was well written and he started being labeled as a traitor to his own people the british and of course the secular zionist paramilitary groups were pretty concerned about him as a well-spoken and popular critic who was giving first-hand accounts of the zionist project and in 1924 he had plans to travel to london along with an anti-zionist delegation to argue against the zionist notion of founding a jewish state and so, as you heard Miko Pellet quickly reference, he was assassinated before he could make that trip. One morning, he exited a synagogue in 1924 on Yaffa Road, and a man named Avram Tahomi approached him and asked him for the time, and then shot him three times and ran away. The assassin uh, was from the group I've mentioned a few times in this series, the Haganah, which was part of the several groups which later on became the IDF after 1948. They tried to blame the shooting on Arabs and even tried to blame it on romantic jealousies because of Dahan's homosexuality. Uh, but many years later, all of the accounts of the planned assassination came to surface. And it turns out that Yitzhak Ben-Zvi ordered the killing. Ben-Zvi went on to become the second prime minister of the state of Israel. I think there's chilling echoes in that story and in the whole tale to mirror many of the political assassinations and Palestinian poets and leaders and writers, many whom Miko mentioned, who may also be a threat to the Zionist project. And I think the story is also interesting for those people who may wonder about some of those black hat Jews that you might see who wave Palestinian flags and are vehemently anti-Zionist. You might see pictures of them at rallies or see them pop up on your news feeds and maybe you're a bit confused. Tracing this Dahan story might enlighten the roots of that split and his argument and this argument that the state of Israel as a concept runs completely counter to Jewish religious teachings. They're often called the Haredi sect and group. You probably all know this by now that I think religion is nonsense, so I don't really need to get into defending this or that version of the interpretation of doctrine. But I also would encourage you to check out some of Miko Pellet's conversations with one of these anti-Zionist rabbis that he converses with sometimes. His name is Yaakov Shapiro. No relation, probably. <laughs> because so much of this series and this entire political mess that we're in right now is really due to this strange problem that I've written about where no one is really sure what a Jew is, an ethnicity, a race, a religion, a lineage. 
And they're even more confused about what a Zionist is. And that confusion, honestly, was a very intentional strategy that's crippling the conversation on this topic. We have to really unvelcro Zionism from Judaism somehow. And I think the Dahan story will really help you discover some of the roots of that effort to not do that and how far back in history they really go. Because I listened to Miko speak to Yaakov Shapiro, and it was actually incredibly refreshing to remember what Judaism really sounds like when you actually let it just be a religion, full of all the metaphysical nonsense and foundationless philosophical argumentation that they all have. It's often suggested that Judaism has gone through a kind of reformation stage that other religions would benefit from. And I'm really not so sure. What seems to be a bit more historically accurate is that a different nationalist colonialist project called Zionism was successfully able to smother it, and as Yaakov Shapiro says in his conversations with Miko Peled, steal it away from Jews. Okay, so the next and final piece of this series, I'll be trying to write and deliver those hypothetical speeches by future Israeli prime ministers that I hope to hear. So we'll see how well I can pull that off and how well they might hit your ear. Um, so thank you to Gideon Levy, Richard English, and Miko Pellet for these three really important and valuable conversations. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>